0: Well, good evening. We got it uh, turned up to Pentecostal level tonight, so right. amen. <laughs> Might make a lap, huh? <laughs> well, I hope you had a good afternoon. It was uh, it a uh, good afternoon, like Pastor Rod said, to enjoy... Uh, God's watering of the earth, and uh, as God continues to take care of everything that's His. And uh, so this uh, evening, we'll continue with our study uh, as we uh, venture on uh, unseen. Uh, So we'll continue in that tonight. But before we do, let's go to the Lord and uh, ask for Him to bless our time together here tonight. God, we bow before you, uh, Lord, tonight. God, we thank you for this day. Uh, God, and everything that this day has meant, uh, Lord as we reflect on the lives, Lord, that you have changed uh, and the celebration of that that we had this morning. Uh, God, we're so grateful, uh, Lord, for what you're doing here uh, in our midst, God. And we're grateful that you allow us to see it, God, to be a part of it, uh, Lord, to participate in what you're doing. God, the greatest thing, uh, Lord, that we could do on earth is to participate in the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, uh, we, we come to you tonight, Lord, we ask for you give us uh, ears to hear tonight. God, we ask for eyes to see. Lord, we ask for understanding and wisdom. Uh, Lord, as we open your perfect inerrant Word, and uh, Lord, I pray that tonight that you'll use your Word, God, to speak to our hearts, to challenge us, uh, Lord, to change us, and ultimately, God, to draw us closer to you in your Son's name, Jesus, that we do pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we uh, are on our study of unseen, and so we're continuing along as we've talked about some uh, some things that may have uh, challenged uh, some of uh, the thought processes that you've had in the past. And so we're, we're uh, talking about, um, uh, you know, as we continue to journey on this path that we're on, we're talking last week about how at the Tower of Babel, uh, all of the nations were together, and uh, they attempted to reach God, if you'll remember, uh, as Pastor Tony preached on that, um in, in those times, they believed that the closer that they could get to God physically, the closer that they would uh, be able to get to God, re, you know, in reality. And so, they're, they're, they believed that, uh, you know, God dwelt in high places. And so, they built this tower, and they wanted to go up to God, if you will. And so, their attempt to reach God. And so, in the, uh, in the aftermath of that, what God did is He scattered the nations at the Tower of Babel. And so he dispersed all 70 of those nations, as you read in Genesis chapter 10, and, uh, and he scattered those nations. And as we talked about last week, as we've been discussing this divine council, uh, God gave those 70 nations over to the divine council. And so those nations were ruled by, uh, by the, uh, the, the participants, if you will, uh, in that council. And so God himself, he allowed that to happen. And in doing so, what he did then in Genesis chapter 12 is he began the nation of Israel. He began, as we talked about last week, his own portion. And so there's this nation of Israel that God creates. And so you know the story in Genesis chapter 12. God goes to Abraham and he says, hey, I know you're up in age, but uh, you and your wife, you're going to have a child and, and that will be the nation of Israel. And so Abraham had some trouble believing that. And, uh, and so God, uh, ultimately, God showed him that it would happen, and it did happen. And so uh, God told Abraham to look to the stars, and he said, As you see the number of stars that are uncountable, so will your generations and those who come after you be uh, that are from your lineage. And so we see that through the nation, or through, rather through the individual of Abraham, God created the nation of Israel. Now that nation is still very alive and present today. Uh, that nation, as we, we talked about through this several times, uh, is, is miraculous how the nation of Israel has survived uh, through time and, and being completely surrounded uh, from every area uh, by their enemy, and yet God continues to protect and provide for the nation of Israel. You see on your handout there uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so that's why it's of utmost importance that we continue to support Israel, uh, because here in Genesis chapter 12, we are commanded to do so. And so, as we read through the remainder of Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 37, and, and the story of Joseph shows up. And so, we read the story of Joseph and how his brothers are, you know, they're out and about, and Joseph has this dream that his brothers will bow down to him, and they're not so keen on that idea, and so they decide it's time to get rid of Joseph. And so, what do they do? Well, they sell Joseph, and uh, when they do, Joseph ends up in, uh, Israel, uh, in Egypt. And so, when he gets to Egypt... Uh, You know, as you read through the book of Genesis, you see that all of a sudden Joseph becomes a pretty important person in the land of Egypt. Now, as that happens, you know, there's, you know, different things that happen in the story, but this story explains how Israel, the nation of Israel, ended up in Egypt. Well, how, how does it explain that? Well, there was a famine in the land. Joseph is in position of power in Egypt. He's been storing up all this grain. And so he invites his family, uh, once they find out that he's still alive, the, he invites them to come to Egypt to partake in the food that they've stored up, that God has used Joseph to plan for and to save up. And so he, in fact, takes his family, Jacob takes his family, and he moves them to Israel. And so, we see then in Genesis chapter 46, this is how God Himself knew (coughs) that He would rescue Israel. Uh, In Genesis chapter 46, on your handout, it says, I myself, which is God talking to Jacob, will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand close to, uh, to your eyes. And so, Here's uh, Jacob taking his family down, the nation of Israel, uh, the descendants of Abraham, down into Egypt. Uh, He goes to Egypt. We know the rest of the story that eventually that Pharaoh who had favor, Joseph had Pharaoh in his eyes. He dies. Someone else comes into power, and all of a sudden, things have changed. Israel is all of a sudden not the favored nation through the eyes of Joseph anymore because of uh, there's a new sheriff in town, if you will. And so God sends a man named Moses, you know the story, uh, and he goes to Pharaoh. And and he tells Pharaoh, based on the prompting of God, that you need to let my people go. And so we we all grow up as children singing that song, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And so Moses goes and he says, hey, God said, let my people go. And this is what Pharaoh said on your handout there in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So, we know the story, right? Pharaoh says, no, I'm not doing that. And all the plagues that were sinned, and as they progressively got worse, Pharaoh said, no, thank you. And, and it would be, oh, well, maybe I'll do it. No, I'm not doing it. Yes, you can go. No, you can't go. And so, finally, uh, the final judgment Uh, God sent. We see that God killed the firstborn, and so the plagues that were sent to the nation of Egypt were not simply God's judgment on Israel, uh, but it was God's judgment also, or His punishment on the divine council. Remember, the divine council has been given rulership over the seventy nations that were dispersed uh, at the Tower of Babel, and so the Bible says in Exodus twelve twelve, "For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night." And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now, pay attention here. And on all the gods. Now, remember, it's important that we use uh, original language here. So, this is the Elohim word that we've been pointing out uh, through the study of Egypt. And I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And so Exodus 12, 12 says that God not only is sending judgment on the nation of Egypt, but God's also sending judgment on these gods that are not following after, on these uh, this divine council members that are not following God, not giving God the glory. And so Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, later on in Exodus, he summed it up this way. Uh, he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people." And so this divine council has failed to honor God. They've failed to uh, give God the glory to which He is due, which if you'll again remember the same template that exists for the divine council is the same template that exists for you and I in humanity. That God in Genesis uh, came to Adam and he says, I'm giving you dominion, I'm giving you rulership, I'm giving you authority over uh, all of the earth. And so he told him to multiply and have dominion over all of the earth. And so God's original plan in the Garden of Eden, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, was that God live on or reside on earth in the Garden of Eden in perfection, with humanity in perfection. And so, that was the original plan. And as we'll see here in a few minutes is that God's, you know, God's plan has always been to restore back to the Garden of Eden. As we go, as you read through Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation, all the prophecy uh, books about the end times, you see them always referencing back many, many things back to the Garden of Eden. And so, through sin that we know in Genesis chapter 3, uh, the sin, the failure of man to uphold, uh, you know, they failed failed to uphold God's original plan. And so, in doing so, uh, they were separated. They were distanced from God because then death came into the picture. Now, death, of course, is separation from God. The Bible says that Adam uh, killed an animal to cover himself with the skin of the animal. And so, we see this story unfold then with uh, the life of the Israelites. So, after the Israelites were released, they headed to Mount Sinai to meet with God. Now, remember... They all believed, and, and, and you know, it's hard for us to understand some of this because we've got Western culture, uh, you know, 21st century worldview, and so it's difficult to understand how they perceive things. Uh, but as, in biblical times, especially in this time here that, that we're particularly looking at, they believed that, uh, that God resided on mountains. Uh, again, one of the reasons for the Tower of Babel is they wanted to uh, have a place to where they could reach God. And so they avoided going to, uh, on mountains. And so if they could at all possible uh, stay away from a mountain, they did not do that. Uh, they, they did not want to go up on the mountain. They wanted to leave that uh, for God's uh, dominion, if you will. And so they go to Mount Sinai. And of course, who do they meet at Mount Sinai? Well, they meet with God. And so the Bible tells us that Moses goes up, and uh, here he receives the law of God. So we know that as the Ten Commandments. And so the Bible says that Moses goes up uh, on the mountain, and, and the Bible says that the commandments were written with the finger of God. And so here's Moses on the mountain, and he receives the commandments from the Lord. And the reason that these commandments were given now, you know, a good legalist would say, uh, so we could earn it, right? So we could do good things. We, wanna, we want these laws and these rules so that we can show God that we really are in favor of Him. But the law was given so that the Israelites would be holy. The law was given so that they would be holy. Now, I want to take a pause and time out here, and I want to I tell you something that uh, I've spent the entire week thinking about. Uh, I called Pastor Tony. We chatted about it. I've been digging around, studying. So, all my life, I've been taught that holiness was an action. Is that you? Yeah, maybe. Nod your head. Yeah, we sing the song. Uh, Ron, we sing the song, holiness. Holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. And so, all my life, I thought, well, I got to get more Holy i got to do things to make me more holy. I've got, got to get involved in activities that make me more holy. And so, the more I, I began to study this and the more I began to think about this and pray about this, holiness is not an activity. Holiness is a state of being. You see, wherever the, the Spirit of God resides, holiness resides, And so, when you and I receive the Spirit of God into our life, instantly, listen to me, this will set you free, legalist, instantly, you are holy. And so, my activity is not to receive holiness, it's in response to holiness. I act this way because I am holy. And so, I I got to digging around and I was studying all the verses. I, I looked at every verse in the Bible that has holy or holiness in it. And one of the verses that's in the Bible, I brought my... Uh, phone up here so I could show you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 16. In 1 Peter chapter, this is not on your handout, but in 1 Peter 1, 16, the Bible says this, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The Greek language says this, holy you will be for I am holy. Holy you will be for I am holy. So if you are a child of God, now I'm having to contain myself here. If you are a child of God, You have instantly become holy in the eyes of God the Father because of Jesus Christ. So, wherever the presence of God resides, it's holy. What did God say to Moses at the burning bush? The place where you stand is holy ground. And it wasn't because Moses did anything. It was because God the Father was there. And so the reason that the Israelites are are given the law here is because God says, look, my presence is with you, nation of Israel, and because my presence is with you, you are holy. The next verse here on your handout, Leviticus 19, 2, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I am the Lord your God am holy. So you are holy, As a child of God, because God is holy. If the Spirit of God resides inside of you, holiness resides inside of you. So, God's intention through this setting apart or through this this holiness of the Ten Commandments was that they would draw the other nations back to Himself. And so, they would be different from these other nations. And so, these laws were given to the nation of Israel. And so, in giving them these laws, God's commandments were that they would do these things, that they would follow these things, not to achieve holiness, but as a result of holiness. And so, all these other nations would say, now, hey, there's something different about that nation Israel, which is exactly what we heard time after time after time on the board this morning for testimony after, testimony after testimony after testimony about there's something different about this person, and there's something different about that person, there's something different about this person, is because the Spirit of God, holiness, resides in believers, and it draws the unbelieving world to Himself. That's how God does it. And so God's intention here is the same uh, with the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 4, 6, Uh, He says, keep them and do them uh, the commandments so that they will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes, they will say. So, what will they say when they hear that you, nation of Israel, are following these commandments? They'll say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people because of what God has commanded them to do. And so, this is why God refers to the nation of Israel then as a light to the nations. Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant people uh, for, it, for the people, a light for the nations. And so, wherever you go, wherever you find yourself, whatever activity or event that you may be involved in, wherever you're at, if you're a child of God, you're a light in that situation. And you're, you're a magnet for the Spirit of God so that those people around you will notice that there's something different about you, and there's a way about you that's different, and that God is using that for His glory. We all exist for the glory of God. And so God is using us and using you and using the nation of Israel to be a light to all of the nations. And so for the nation of Israel, salvation was no different than it is for you and for me, simply by faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says that salvation is by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? And so it's not anything that you do or that I do that earns me salvation or makes me worthy of salvation, because we know that's not possible, but it's simply by faith. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says what? It says, for if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. Faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's what you're saved by. That's what I'm saved by. What am I rescued from eternal damnation uh, because of? Because of faith, because of what Jesus did, and that I have faith in what Jesus did. Therefore, I have eternal salvation. And so, for the Israelites, it was no different than it was for you and me. They had to believe that their God, Yahweh God, was different than all the other uh, gods that, you know, all the Amorites and all the ones may have have worshipped, and that He was the God of all gods, that He was God alone, that He was the Most High God, that He was on the throne of their life, of their heart. They had to believe that. Now, they had a choice. Now, I, I like to think this. If I'm the Israelites and I'm leaving Egypt and you know, all the chariots are behind me, and, and it's not looking real good for me right now. And then all of a sudden, the waters part, and it's dry ground, and I walk across dry ground and get to the other side, and then all the water falls on top of the Egyptians, and they all drown, uh, which if you've never watched the documentary, I think it's on Netflix, about they've found the, the, their spokes that they found, you know, of how they made the wagon wheels with iron and everything. Um, I'm on the other side of uh, the Red Sea, I've seen where God has parted. I look back, and I see all the carnage of the Egyptians. Whatever you say, God, I'm doing it. All the Egyptians just died because you parted something that was impossible to part, and you made a way for me to make it. Whatever you say, I'm doing it. Whatever you say. And so they had to have faith and believe that God could continue and that he would continue to be the most high God, that he was the God of all gods. And so, the law was then not how they achieved salvation, but it was how they showed loyalty to God in whom they believed. It was their worship. You could could replace the word loyalty there with worship. It was how they showed worship to God in whom they believed. And so, in reflection of that, you know, why do we show up on Sundays and Wednesdays, which is the days that we have reserved for worship? It's because we're we're not showing up Uh, for any other reason, or at least shouldn't be showing up for any other reason, but to sing praises corporately to God, to encourage each other in the faith as we follow Jesus, as we attempt to be who Jesus created us to be, and get recharged so that when we go back out into the world, that we know that we've got our brothers and sisters in Christ that are praying for us, and that are encouraging us, and that are walking the same path of life that we're walking, that by faith, that we believe that these are the things that God has called us to do. And so, in worship or in loyalty, we're going to follow through with those things. And so, the law is saying for us that the Bible teachings of Jesus, they're not how we achieve salvation, but us following those is a result of what God has done inside of our hearts. It's our act of worship. And so, just like uh, the life of David, think about David. David was an adulterer. He even arranged the murder of Uriah. But he never wavered in his belief that Yahweh was the most high God. He never wavered. Read Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. Uh, Psalms 22 was in your D group reading here a week or two ago. And and he says in Psalms 22 God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 1. Why have you forsaken me? God, where are you? God, I'm reaching out to you. God, I'm calling you. Do you hear me? And then yet in verse three, he says, "Yet you are holy." In every one of the psalms, you read that about David, because David's crying out, "God are you there? God do you hear me? God rescue. God rescue me. God, my enemies are surrounding me. God I'm about to die." But then he always says, "But you alone are God. Yet you are holy. My circumstances don't change who you are, God. You're holy. You're Yahweh. You're God the Most High. And so, regardless of what David found himself, he never changed. He never wavered in his worship of God being the Most High God. He never switched his worship to another God. So, the same is true in the New Testament. The same is true in the New Testament believing in the gospel, that means that you believe that the God of Israel came to earth as a man, took the form of a servant, voluntarily died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. He rose again on the third day, so He defeated death. And so, by faith, we embrace the fact that Jesus did that, that we believe that Jesus did that, and we show our worship to Jesus by forsaking uh, all other gods, by forsaking any other worship of anything except for Jesus, right? That's how you got saved. That's how I got saved. That's how we're all saved, is by faith in what Jesus Christ did, and believing that Jesus is who He said He is, that Jesus did what He said He did, And that Jesus will do what He says He will do, which is save you and I. Rescue you and I from eternal separation from God. So, in Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men whereby you must be saved. Jesus. Jesus. So, you know, there's a lot of other religions in the world, and the hinge point in every one of them is Jesus. It's Jesus. You know, many of them say, oh, well, Jesus was a good man, or he was a a, a prophet, but he has to be the Son of God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus Christ has to be the second person of the Trinity. You have to believe that Jesus Christ came uh, in in the virgin birth, in the form of virgin birth, that he took on the cross, that he took your sins and my sins, that he died a sinner's death. Although he were perfect, he died a sinner's death on the cross. He was in the grave for three days. He rose from death So that death could be defeated. Remember the Bible says, oh death, where is your sting? So that death could be defeated and that he lives forever at the right hand of God the Father. That's what salvation is, is believing that Jesus is who he said he is. That's how you receive it. And so there's no other name under heaven by which you and I or anyone else will be saved. There's no other belief system. I mean, every other belief system, you have to do something to earn it. Yet in Christianity, Jesus said, I will earn it for you. So, as we see here, why this matters. Well, the Bible says here, Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up with Moses. So, we see that there were 70 elders that went with Moses. Now, these numbers will be imported in just a second. Seventy elders that go with Moses. And in Genesis chapter 10, there are 70 nations. So, God's giving the law to the 70 elders on Mount Sinai. In Genesis chapter 10, you rewind back there, there are 70 nations that God gives over to the divine council in Genesis chapter 10. So these numbers represent the fact that God's intentions were and still are to reclaim the nations for the kingdom of God. Depending on the translation that you have, uh, many translations even uh, relate that to Luke chapter 10. Uh, when the 70 disciples are sent out in Luke chapter 10. And so the whole intention is to reclaim the nations for the kingdom of God. And so, as we've talked about for the last several weeks, uh, darkness permeated the face of the earth. Sin permeated the face of the earth. And so as we go out as missionaries, and, you know, I, I love talking to people who don't know anything about our church. And, and they ask if we're involved in missions. And I say, well, as a matter of fact, we are. And uh, I get to talk about all the places that God uses our fellowship and, and all the different places. And it's, it's not just in one little spot. Everywhere. I mean, God is, is sending people from our fellowship all over this globe to different places of the earth. And what's the intention of that? What's the reason? You ask all the people that are involved. If you look on the back of your bulletin, you see it, over 100 people were sent on short-term mission trips. And, and what are they doing? Taking the light to the dark places. When we go to Brazil, we go to places who've never heard the gospel. We mention the name Jesus. It's the first time they've ever heard it. Time after time after time, we're sending teams out into the darkness to shine the light for the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reclaim the nations, to take one step further into darkness to reclaim that for the light. And so, the reason for that is because we not only have been commanded to do that, go into all the nations and uh, disciple them, but also because we are, we are reclaiming the dominion that was lost in the fall, that God gave to the 70 nations. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, that's good for people like me who don't have any hair, right? One day, what we will be, it just hasn't quite appeared yet, right? Uh, But what we do know is that when He appears, we shall be like Him. So, in theology, there's justification, right? That where you're made right with God because of Jesus there's sanctification, which is what a lot of you are in, involved in, in D groups and, and, and uh, discipleship. You're being sanctified. And then there's glorification, right? Which is what he's talking about here, is that we, when, we, when he appears, Jesus, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so this old raggedy body, and, you know, I was joking with the guys earlier that I said, my back is hurting. Is that normal? And they said, well, have you crossed 40 yet? And, uh, and so all these ailments and all these things that we go through and all these things that we face in our life, we know that one day all of that will disappear. And we will be as we were created to be. And so when that happens, we will rule over the nations, so I know a lot of times we think, all right, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus. When I get to go to heaven, uh, I'm going to sit around. I'm going to worship Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and ever how time is measured in heaven. Right? But no, not only are we going to worship Jesus, just like God originally uh, designed in the Garden of Eden, is that we're going to be participants in the things that God created. And so, the Bible says here in uh, Revelations 2, 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So, in the millennial reign and and, in the eternal reign of God the Father, we'll have dominion, we'll have ownership, we'll be able to participate in the things of God. So, back up to the Garden of Eden. The plan was for us to rule and to reign over all of the earth, the original plan was that Adam would rule and reign. He would be fruitful and multiply. Remember that? And he would rule over all of the earth. But then sin happened. Sin derailed the plan, but sin did not defeat the plan because sin cannot defeat God. And so through the nation of Israel, God's plan, as I mentioned earlier, was to reclaim the nations through Abraham's lineage. And so God created the nation of Israel, Genesis chapter 12. And uh, He created His portion. And so His plan was that they would multiply, just like He told Adam, that they would uh, be more than the stars of the sky. And in doing so, as they uh, took their different journeys through the wilderness all the way to the promised land, What they're doing is they're representatives for God, just like you and I, as we go out, we're representatives for God. And so the whole intention was that they would reclaim the nations through the lineage of Abraham. Now, it's very important to to point this out. Who was from the lineage of Abraham? Jesus. So how's God reclaiming the nations? Through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. That was the only way it could happen. And so this is why it is the intent of all, as I mentioned earlier, ungodly nations, all the ungodly nations, they desire to do one thing, to eliminate Israel. That's their goal. I mean, I was even thinking this week about uh, the Holocaust. Well, that was the Jews, right? And so we see all, of, all of, through history, it's we've got, to, we've got to eradicate Israel. We've got to eradicate Israel. Well, why is that? because they're following someone else besides Yahweh God. Many of the strange laws and practices in the Old Testament are grounded in the fact to teach people that God is unlike everything and everyone else. You ever thought about that? You know, why do they do those things in the Old Testament. What are the Levitical laws for? You you know, you you hear different questions about that. Well, God gave them uh, strange laws and practices in the fact to show all the other nations that didn't follow Him that they were different, that God is different than everything else, that there is none like God, that God is the Most High God, that He is Yahweh alone. And so, the practices of the nation of Israel uh, in the Old Testament are grounded in the fact to show them that He is, in fact, different. And so, this is where the biblical idea of God's uniqueness came from, which we refer to as holiness. The biblical idea for God's uniqueness is holiness. And so, when you and I receive the Spirit of God into our life, we receive the holiness of God in our life. Now, that doesn't negate our actions. Now, you know, I, I joke with them Wednesday night as a recovering legalist, you know, I want to run to actions and activities uh, that require me to be more holy. That's where uh, a legalist heart runs towards. And, but what happens in our world is, so we understand the fact, okay, that I'm holy because God is holy. It's not because of something I did. It's because who He is and that His presence resides inside of me. So on the other side of that is in response to the Spirit of God living inside of me and me being on holy ground, I should respond in activity or in actions that shows that. But this is what happens in our life. So pretend with me, if you will, that this is the line of sin. And what we do as humans is our our nature is to get as close to that line as possible. How close to sin can I get and still be okay with God? That's where your heart will lead you. Is how close can I get to this word called sin? And you fill in the activity, whatever it may be, how close can I get and still be okay with God? But what holiness is is this: holiness is how far away from sin can I get? How far away from sin can I get because of what God has done for me in response to the holy ground in which I reside? I want to run as far away from sin as possible. That's what holiness is. But our hearts will lead us to say, well, how close can you get and still be okay? How much can I get away with? So the biblical idea of holiness simply means to be set apart. So you can you can uh, define that ever how you want, but I would say it means to be set apart from sin, to be removed as far as possible from sin, to be set apart. God is different. God is unique. There is none. You know, we sing the song. There is none like you. There is none other like Yahweh God. Well, what makes God different? What makes God unique? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about a couple of those things. God's realm is supernatural. Our realm is earthly. We're we're mortals. And so there's nothing uh, that we can do. You know, it's one of the things people talk about a lot of times with salvation. They say, well, I'm just not sure if I'm saved. And so I say, well, uh, how did you get saved? And they say, well, you know, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Well, was it something that you did that secured salvation for you? Or was it something that God did that secured salvation for you? Oh, well, it's not, you know, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, we quote the verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And so I say, well, if God did something eternally for you who are mortal, then you as a mortal can't mess up something that God did eternally. Does that make sense? And so your salvation is an eternal salvation based on something that an eternal God did. And so, God's realm is different than your realm. God's realm is different than my realm. We live on earth. We understand things in terms of, of earthliness. If, if there's anything that this study has done for me, it's just expanded the view of who God is. Because I want to put God in understandable terms. I want to make sure that it's okay, well, this says this and it means this and I can understand this. But I have limitations, and you have limitations. And those limitations are capacitated within the confines of your mind. And only as far as you can think and understand and dream or as far as you will allow God to go in your heart and mind. But that's not who God is. God exists far beyond that. Before you existed, He was God. After we exist, He will still be God. And so I don't change that about God. Nor do you. And so whatever I capacitate or whatever I limit God in thinking that He can or cannot do, it doesn't confine Him. So His realm is supernatural. Our realm is earthly. The earthly space that God occupies is instantly holy simply by His presence, whereas the space that we occupy is very ordinary. The place that God occupies is instantly holy solely because He is there. This is evidenced by the fact That people had to be invited and purified to occupy the same space as God. In the Old Testament, if they were to enter into the Holy of Holies where God resided. We talked about this, remember, uh, with the presence of God and how it went from a temple to a tabernacle, and now uh, through us, we are the the temple, if you will, of of the Holy Spirit. And so, the Spirit of God resides inside of us. And so, the people in the Old Testament, if they were to go into the Holy of Holies, they had to be invited. Remember John the Baptist, his father, Zechariah, and they cast lots, and you got a chance once a year as a priest to go into the Holy of Holies. That was his one shot to meet with God and they would tie a rope around their ankle, and as they would walk into the Holy of Holies, if they stopped moving, they would drag them out of the presence of God because you could not enter into the presence of God unless you had been invited into the presence of God and unless you had been prepared by purification to enter into the presence of God. And so being unclean and unfit to approach sacred space was a very, very serious matter for ancient Israelites. It was a very serious matter. Now, it's hard for us to comprehend the sacrificial system of the Old Testament because we just don't do that today. But try to put your mindset into their worldview. Being unclean and unfit was a very, very big deal. And so this is where we see the blood sacrifice come to existence. There had to be Sacrifice. Now, again, we don't we don't understand that. We, you know, in our worldview, we don't we don't deal with that. But since blood was the life force, taking an animal life taught the lesson that approaching God on any terms except His terms meant death. So, animals' life existed in the animal. And so, when they, would, when they would sacrifice an animal, and they would bring an unblemished lamb to the sacrifice, uh, this taught the lesson that, hey, if you're going to approach me as Yahweh God, then you're going to have to do it on my terms. Remember the guys that touched the ark when God told them not to? What happened to them, Right? And so God says, look, I'm I'm Yahweh God. I'm different. I have uh, rules and regulations. There's things in which I want you to abide by. I'm giving you these standards that I want you to abide by. And so in doing so, if you do not follow me, if you do not abide by uh, the, the rules in which I've set forth, then that will mean instant death. And so what God was doing is he's teaching them that he, this is a foreshadow, that he is preserving their life by substituting another life. And so as they show up to sacrifice to God for their sins, and they bring their sacrifice, what they're doing is there's a life that is being given for their sins, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And so he's showing them that, listen, there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a payment. You can't just flippantly live any way that you want to live. And so human life is more sacred than animal life. And the reason for that is humans were created in the image of God. And so that's why animals were sacrificed. So human life was certainly more sacred. And and the reason for that is you and I, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we are created in the image of God. And so these sacrifices reminded us them that God had power over life and death, and He wanted to show them mercy. So God had the ability and the power, but He allowed them a way, if you will, to put their sin on credit until Jesus came. And so they're making these sacrifices year over year over year, but then Hebrews says that Jesus came and He did what? He died once for all, that He paid the sin debt for you and for me. And so, as these Israelites would approach God, they had to approach God on His terms, because wherever God resided, the holiness of God was at. And so, they couldn't just walk into uh, this; they couldn't just walk into the holy of holies. There had to be an invitation. There had to be a process by which they prepared to meet with God. Which is why it is so amazing and so in, uh, important that the Bible says that when Jesus was uh, crucified on the cross, that what happened to the veil. It was torn from top to bottom. And so we automatically had access to God himself. Now that's a big deal. And so the Israelites had to go through. Imagine, imagine, if you will, with me, let's fast forward a couple thousand years. And we're in heaven, and we're having conversations with some Israelites. And we talk about how we came into worship. And we talk about how we approach God in prayer. And we talk about the life in which we live. And they're going to say, now wait a minute. We had to do, but because of Jesus... See, they're on the back side of the cross. They, they, Jesus hasn't come yet. You see, if God, if where God dwells is holy ground, then everywhere else is unholy. And God's own presence was marked by reminders of Eden. And so the holiness of God is where God dwells. His own presence was a reflection back to the Garden of Eden. You see that uh, the golden lampstand was fashioned and decorated as a tree, which of course is an analogy of the tree of life in Eden. You see the reference there on your handout. So, the golden lampstand was there on a tree, or decorated as a tree rather. Then we see uh, the cherubim. So, the angels inside the Holy of Holies are also a clear connection to the Garden of Eden. The cherubim stood guard at the dwelling place of God in Eden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. So, as we're going through this, remember, God's restoring. God's looking forward, but yet He's looking back to restoration in the Garden of Eden. Later, we see when Solomon built the temple, there were two giant cherubim that were installed over the ark. So, again, reference back to the Garden of Eden... The temple was decorated like the Garden of Eden, 1 Kings 6 and 7. And so God is, His presence, again, was in, in the Garden of Eden. It was His intention, was that He would fellowship with humanity, that His presence would dwell in the Garden of Eden. Remember, Adam, uh, it says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, and so He's, he's uh, in fellowship with God. His presence is there. And so God is, all these Edenic references are back to the Garden of Eden because any other place than Israel, which is where God's presence was, was considered unholy ground. And so as you think as the uh, uh, Israelites were marching towards the promised land, any time they would come into territory uh, with other people, other nations, that was unholy ground. Because God resided, wherever God resided, which was with the nation of Israel, that was what was holy ground, which was, if you'll remember last week where Naaman, uh, after all that happened with Naaman, he was cured of the leprosy, what did he ask for? Two mule loads of dirt. Because God resided with the nation of Israel. And so wherever God is, there is His presence. And so as we now get into the New Testament, so on the other side of the cross, nothing has changed for you and for me. The holiness of Jesus still requires purification to enter into His presence. And how does that happen? Well, this is accomplished by believing in what Jesus did on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin that I might become the righteousness of God. So that purification takes place not because of my action or activities but because of the action and activity of Jesus Christ. And so the wilderness, the, uh, the other place, if you will, of the presence of God, God resided in the nation of Israel. Uh, the Israelites wandered through the desert, the wilderness, for 40 years until they came into the promised land as they encountered all some, uh, several of the, these other nations that didn't follow God. That was where unholy ground resided. And so just then again in the New Testament, Jesus went into the wilderness, for you and for me, and He overcame the temptation of Satan. So we read in the first part of Matthew that Satan takes, our Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. He's fasting, and then guess who shows up? And He begins to tempt Jesus. And so Jesus Christ, we know, was perfect, and so He overcame the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. Jesus was also crucified Where? outside of the the holy city, Jerusalem. Well, why is that? Again, because the presence of God is where holiness is at. And so Jesus, taking on the sin of the world, went outside of the city of Jerusalem to pay the sin debt. So He was unclean because our sins were on Him and Jerusalem was holy ground. Jesus took our sins... And so he's outside of the holy city. But through the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, we are sanctified, making us fit for the presence of God. So if we try to approach God in our sin, that, that doesn't happen. The only way we can approach God is through the, His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's where, remember I talked about justification, where God looks at you through the lens of Jesus. He sanctifies you. He makes you into who He created you to be. He sanctifies you, making us fit for God's presence. And so though uh, we are unclean, we are holy because of Jesus Christ. So we can look at ourselves. And so when you wake up in the every morning and you look at yourself in the mirror, you can say to yourself, self, you are holy. Now, you may not feel like it. And and maybe sometimes you don't act like it. Maybe sometimes I don't act like it. But if the Spirit of God resides inside of me, I can, based on what Scripture says, I can look at myself and say, Self, you are holy. And then we ought to live like that. We ought to respond in, in the life in which we are involved in the people that we're around and knowing that because of the Spirit of God inside of me, I am on holy ground and I should live in response to that. So though I'm unclean, We are holy because of Jesus Christ. Though imperfect, we are considered righteous because of Jesus. Again, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So for you and I, we don't need a tabernacle that is marked as sacred space. God's presence doesn't just simply reside in one small confined area. But you and I, our bodies, we are sacred space because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own. So we go from the temple, uh, from the tabernacle to the temple, and then to you and I being the uh, presence or the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And so, since God indwells every believer, therefore, each church, the gathering of believers is considered holy ground. So, we can reference back to the burning bush and say that because we have the Spirit of God inside of us, where you're sitting right now is holy ground. And it's not because of these four walls or the, 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 uh, the steeple but it's because of the Spirit of God that resides inside of every believer in this room. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, which we talked about last week, uh, he told the church to deliver the man to Satan. Because why? Because the church was holy ground. And anything that's outside of holy ground is unholy ground, which is where the enemy resides. Now, the last piece on your handout, I, I didn't uh, leave any blanks because I wanted you to have it all written nice and neat so you could remember this. So don't, don't put your hand up, so, up yet. We are children of God, fit for sacred space, not because of your actions, but because of Christ in you. So you and I can rest in the fact that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we have access to God the Father that we have the ability to know God because of what Jesus did, that we have salvation because of what Jesus did, that we don't have to earn salvation and that because of what Jesus did on the cross, the Holy Spirit uh, the Bible says, Jesus said I must go so that the Holy Spirit would come, the Holy Spirit come and resides inside of each and every one of us which is why that you heard child after child after child say what this morning? I asked Jesus into my heart, I asked Jesus into my heart, well what are they Saying. They're saying that I ask the Spirit of God to reside inside of me and to be holy ground. That's what they're saying when they say, I ask Jesus into my heart. And so, for you and I to know that every day, wherever we may find ourselves, whether it be work or school or Walmart or wherever we may be, we are holy ground. Because we have the Spirit of God inside of us. And so the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who saves us. And so as we encounter many different things in life, we can rest in the fact that we're holy because Jesus is holy because of what Jesus Christ did inside of us. And there's no friend or fro that will come against us that can overcome because we're more than overcomers in Jesus Christ because greater is He who is in me, First John 4, 4, than he who lives in the world today. So whatever, whatever nation you may encounter, you have Yahweh God inside of you. He's the most high God, and there's none greater than him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray tonight. God, thank you so much for this night. God, thank you for the opportunity.